This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. My name is Adam Sokol, and if this is your first time joining in, thanks so much for being here. If you've been here since the beginning, thanks for coming back. Today's episode is with Judith Turner Yamamoto, the author of Loving the Dead and Gone, which is a fabulous small town novel. If you're a fan of this podcast and you've been listening to me recommend books for a while, you know that I love small town stories with big emotions, complicated, stubborn characters, and that is loving the dead and gone absolutely to a T. We get into what the book is about a little bit later into this episode, but first we start with a discussion all about Judith's love and passion for movement in general, specifically dance. She was involved in ballet for about 30 years worth of going to classes. It's just a really interesting uh, life story. She didn't actually pick up ballet until she turned 19, a time which I, I joked, you know, when because ballet is one of those things where uh, it is not for people who, who age. Unfortunately, you know, ballet dancers that you see in professional ballet tend to be very, very young. And so I said, I was like, it's interesting that she got into this specific type of movement when most professionals are giving it up. But it's a really interesting conversation, just the connections between the movement and the discipline and all the different things you need to be a successful ballerina and how it's connected to the writing process. We talk about how because she's been involved in the world of dance, how she comes to watch and appreciate dance a little bit more differently. Just a really, really fascinating conversation. I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. Everyone who's been listening for a while knows how much I love movement. I love running, all these different things. So anytime anyone comes on and talks about a type of movement, I'm all for it. As a reminder, you can always get customized book recommendations from me by leaving me a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and just sending me an email at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I am coming up on the end of the month here, so I will be picking a winner of a bookshop.org gift card for anyone who sends me their passions, again, to passionsandprologues at gmail.com. Just let me know what you're passionate about. I will pick one of them randomly and I will send you a bookshop.org gift card. Perfect time of year for it, right? You know, the holidays right around the corner and currently happening as well. So uh, before we get to that, I want to give you a recommendation of a book uh, towards the end of the year. In addition to reading books that I have previously read, I also love a cozy Agatha Christie style mystery. And there is no better Agatha Christie style mystery than the mystery of Mrs. Christie by Marie Benedict. 
If you are familiar with, or if you're not familiar with Marie Benedict, rather, she writes about women in history who haven't gotten their proper due. She has several incredible books, including Carnegie's Maid, Her Hidden Genius, The Only Woman in the Room, The Other Einstein. Um, obviously, Agatha Christie is a very, very well-known person, but there is this interesting time in her life where for about 11 days, she completely disappeared. People couldn't find her. They didn't know where she went. And then she just sort of showed up and never really explained what happened. So Marie takes that true story and tries to piece together what happened. It's a really, really interesting book. That's The Mystery of Mrs. Christie by Marie Benedict. Uh, okay, before we get to Judith, just want to say thank you once more for all the people who've been listening in since uh, we launched the podcast back in the summer. We are coming up on the end of the year, so about six months of having this out in the world. Uh, if you've been enjoying it, I hope you'll share it with some people. Uh, just let them know about it as well. We are growing, and it is a great, uh, great community that we've got here. So, you know, love to have more people in there. Okay, that is all of the housekeeping. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Judith Turner Yamamoto, author of Loving the Dead and Gone, um, Passions and Prologues. Okay, so I am so excited to dive into this. Judith, what is the thing you're super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? I would have to say the power of movement. Um, and for me, that's meant a lot of different kinds of movement. It actually, my love for exercise actually began when I was 19 and one of my friends dragged me to a ballet class in college. And I just went because she wanted to go. She ended up going twice and I ended up dancing for the next 30 years. <laughs> so I see a lot of parallels in a commitment to exercise and what you have to bring to, to writing, not only just every day, but in, in the long run, discipline is really an important key to everything. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, starting your dance journey at, at 19, a time when, you know, most people might either have to start thinking about giving it up or, you know, taking it so seriously that it's the only thing they do. So I guess just like, Take me through what it was about, if you remember that, that first class or those first few classes, what was it that drew you so, you know, immediately and intensely to want to dance and, and use your body in that way? And what kind of kept you going throughout the years? I think it was a discovery of an innate gift of musicality that I had never been aware of. And it was something that I would hear from teachers throughout the years. And I just found in it, you know, in, in ballet, there's this discipline. You go to class and things happen in this particular order. You know, you begin with ballet, you know, with plies and, and you move on to tendu and, you know, on and on and on until you're in center floor and there's reverence and all that. And I just found it to be a place where, and I think this is true for a lot of exercise, it's a freeing mental space where 
you go in and these things are going to happen. I mean, I find it now like lifting weights. I mean, I love counting reps. That probably sounds sick, but but there's this meditative quality to it, yes? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you must know this from being a runner. I find that, you know, if I'm swimming laps, these ideas will just drop into my head like gifts. Mm-hmm. And my husband's a visual artist and he says the same thing. You know, he'll come out from the pool and he'll say, I had this great idea for an installation and I, or I know how I'm going to address this proposal now. Um, and I think that that's one of the gifts. It's like, it's like, it's like connection to your mind, connection to your body, but it's like, it opens all those channels. I know exactly what you mean. Like you said, from, from a distance running standpoint, like it doesn't happen for me in the first mile the first 15 minutes or anything like that but there definitely gets to that point where you know meditative is such a perfect word for it because even if i'm listening to music or a podcast or something i'll inevitably zone out and like you're right like my mind drifts to story ideas or just things i want to tell like my brother or you know a friend in real time or can like jot it down and you know I definitely understand that, like you said, for, for swimming and for you know, lifting weights, same thing, like that kind of losing yourself in the moment. I'm curious for dance. I've heard a lot of people who mm. do stage acting. I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have done, you know, like theater for a living and they talk about when they're playing a character for so long, they, they can lose themselves into that character and then they can seek out like nuances and ways to keep it fresher themselves. I'm curious when you're talking about dance and ballet, like if you were working on a specific you know, performance or show or whatever it might be for so long, is it something where you're able to find new aspects of the dance itself to focus on? Or I guess as a person who, and I don't have any dance experience personally i'm mm. curious what that what that feeling is like if it is similar to a stage actor or if it's something that's completely different i think you know I, and I, full disclosure i never performed you know this i was just taking three classes a week for <laughs> 30 years but there is this kind of you're going through these same motions Mm-hmm. And it is this uh, ballet is an open ended experience where you can continue to perfect yourself. It's like the unattainable perfection, much like mm-hmm. rewriting. <laughs> so every time you do a certain combination in center floor, you find that your body, you know, muscle memory becoming more proficient in increments. Mm-hmm. So there's this very slow kind of progression of getting better, improving that is enormously satisfying. And then there will usually be like a leap, no pun intended. (laughs) There's usually a leap where you go to some other level and then you're working from there, if, if that makes any sense. So you're constantly building and perfecting your tools um, and it all comes through that just returning to the studio. It's like returning to your desk mm-hmm. and you go in there at an appointed time and you put yourself in that zone and you proceed from where you were a day, two days before. So 
I always joke with people and actually on the first episode of this podcast with Mally Romero, I joked, she's a power lifter. We were talking about my love of running and I, and I joked that a lot of people say like a lot of people who are runners, they love having ran, like they love being done with a run and talking about their run, just like a lot of writers, like having written, like they like knowing it, you know, whether they're morning writers and they've written their 1500 or 2000 words, whatever it is for the day. They love being done and being like, oh, okay, I've, I've written, I have done the thing I, I like doing and now it's done and I can think about it. I like the hard part. I like the, the running process. I like sitting down in my manuscript and like churning out words and, and trying to figure that that stuff out. But I also appreciate the people who say like, now that they're done with their morning writing session, they're like, okay, I'm good to go. For you, for dance, is it something, is it similar? Is it like, okay, now that I'm done with the movements, my body feels better and my mind feels refreshed? Or are you more like me or like you like being in the moment of doing, you know, like you said, even if it's the same movement over and over, like going through that process, is it something you enjoy in the moment or something you like after the fact as well? Well, I like it after the fact, but I'm with you. It's, it's being in that moment and Mm -hmm. the actual doing of it. I am one of those people who just loves to move. So I don't like to sit still at all. (laughs) So yeah, definitely. It's, it's the doing of it. I find real joy in it. So that's where it is for me. Yeah. Do you think you see examples of dance differently, having spent so much time doing it yourself? Like, I, you know, I've talked to so many writers who now when they read books, they can't help but think about the process or the <gasps> choices of characters and things like that. Do you think dance is the same way for you having spent so much time and understanding kind of how the sausage gets made, for lack of a better term. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, to go to an, a performance, because you could see, I know what it takes to get that leg up that high, <laughs> <laughs> right? And to have that kind of extension, mm-hmm. you are doubly in awe of it. And I can, you know, I'll even sit there and, you know, deconstruct the movements, you know, and think what's happening, you know, Tandu, glissade, blah, 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 blah. Uh And I I get a certain rush out of being able to do that. So I do think that it makes you appreciate it from a more enriched perspective. Hmm. And also when I read, I certainly do look at how did they do it. Uh And I find myself if there's a change of scene, it's like, okay, let me go back and look at how that person, how this writer got that person from this room into the car. Because that happened really quickly, but it was very smooth. And wow, I'm impressed by that. One of my favorite pieces, and I must have reread this thing now at least five times, Mm -hmm. is Mary Gordon's The Liar's Wife. And it's three novellas. And The Liar's Wife is the first one. And that is the one that I return to because she so skillfully moves around in this piece and and takes us inside the consciousness of the protagonist and into her memories in such incredible detail, but 
believable recall, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I just in awe of how she does it. So yeah, it's true of both those things. I look at them from a totally different perspective, I think, than just somebody picking up a book or or watching a performance. I love that. There's there's an um, a book that I feel the same way. I read it at the end of every year. It's uh, Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk by Kathleen Rooney. And she does something similar with like the recall. It's about this older woman who people who have listened to me do podcasts for a while are like rolling their eyes. I talk about this book probably like once every three months. But it's this older woman who lives in New York City and she goes for a walk and she is recalling all of her life in advertising in New York City for R.H. Macy's. And like, it's this be- and same thing. Like she does these recall stories where it just feels so realistic. And actually last time I was in New York, I walked by what was, what is or the actual restaurant she goes to. And I like had this moment where I was like, oh my God, everything here looks exactly like it's described in the book. And like, mm. and it's, same thing. Like I just found myself realizing, like thinking about how the actor or not the actor, how the, the author put that all together. And then you're right. I think there's like a different appreciation for things like, you know, you're talking about for dance and for me, for running, like before I got really big into running, the concept of watching like the Olympic marathon would be like, why would I want to watch anyone run for two hours? And now it's like, <laughs> Anytime, like now, anytime there's a big run, I'll be like, oh my God, look at this person's form for two hours and three minutes. And it's just like, it's, I think dance is similar to, you know, you mentioned swimming and, you know, and, and running. I think there's these things where like you as a person who has spent so much time in dance, if you were to watch a performance, you would be even more impressed by everything than like someone like me would, who I could say like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful expression of a movement of a body but like like you said you being like I know exactly how much work that went into putting that foot where it is like I I imagine that's something you appreciate even further than like the normal just watcher of a you know of someone who goes to like the nutcracker once a year and doesn't look at any other type of dance right exactly it's totally different and I think it's richer and there are other people you know other people have knowledge about other aspects of things I mean I think about one of my friends in New York who was an art director at um, different magazines for many years that were involved in the design and arts world and I know it's a very different experience for him to pick up a magazine Mm-hmm. and look at it than say for a person buying one on a newsstand to flip through. And I think that's true of every aspect of life. No, it's the experiences that we bring to it. And in fiction, I think it's the ex- experiences, you know, I, Alice McDermott has this fabulous new book about writing. What about the baby? Mm-hmm. And in it, she says that when we read fiction, what we're looking for is we're looking for us. And I think that's so true. You know, you're, you're looking for something that relates back to experiences that you've had and that you can connect with and enlarge your own life. I totally agree with that. As a person who, you know, I was talking about Lillian Boxford Shakes a Walk, like there's so many books that I find myself drawn to because I'm a, I'm a nostalgic person. And so like these, even though I'm 
I'm in my mid thirties. Like I'm drawn to books that feature characters who are in their like seventies and eighties looking back on their life because it's like a forced nostalgia. And I always say that I love books that are, have small stories with big emotions. And like, that's because that's kind of how I see my own world. Like I'm one small story, but I'm a very emotional person. And so you're, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I want to kind of transition to your actual writing process. Like, do you find yourself when you're sitting down to write a book, like, do you find yourself relating your writing process to, like you talked about dance and movement, because obviously the writing process is the opposite of movement. It is sitting down and being stationary on a, on a keyboard or a computer for like, mm. 20 minutes or three hours. Like, how would you say those two things are connected for you? Mm, wow, toughie. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bridge would be discipline. And sticking with something, because when you sit down at, at that keyboard, you are looking to engage with this part of your mind that is building this story. So that, I think, is the thread that connects those two things. It's just being able to wheel yourself to get into that place. You talked about how, you know, when you run that first couple, that's 10 minutes or so, it's like rough, right? (laughs) But then you're in and you're in the flow and you kind of have to wait. You have to be, have the perseverance to wait for the wave to catch you, Mm -hmm. to take you into this fictional dream. So I think that's it. Yeah. So do you think, because obviously for, for dance, or even like you said, for, for like weightlifting or for swimming, there's a plan in a direction like for dance, you know, the next movement, you know, the next, um, the next thing you're going to put your body through. And obviously for swimming, it's, it can be repetitive and it can be, you know, one stroke after the next, but you know, the process. And like you said, counting reps for, for weightlifting, all these different things. Do you sit down, like, how do you approach a problem in your writing when there isn't maybe a a clear direction? Is it something that you just try to like write through or do you find yourself doing the like, (laughs) look out the window and and think through it um, contemplatively? I guess, how do you, when you come up to a part of a a manuscript that you don't yet know the next movement, how do you approach that? Well, this is going to take me to the part of where my stories come from. And it's especially this first writing of a story. It's not an intellectual exercise for me at all. Mm-hmm. I confess I hear voices and that's where my stories come from. And they begin with, I'll just hear these characters talking in my head in these very distinct voices mm-hmm. and they'll say something and I'll go, oh! and it just, you know, that's the beginning of it. I mean, I've even had characters in a second book start talking before the I had finished the first one. And it's like I have to get, it's like, listen, listen, I, I, you have to tell my story mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then it's a process of discovering who this person is that's talking and, and what their story is. So for me, it's, it's, um, it's almost like watching a film. Writing is like watching a film. And I see this thing in my head. I hear these voices. I hear the dialogue. And I'm working 
to get it all down. Mm -hmm. And it's not until I go back to those, you know, the editing and the unending reworking where the intellectual side plays Mm -hmm. into it. And, you know, then I'm looking at more technical things like structure and that kind of thing. And just on a pragmatic day-to-day kind of writing exercise, I always go back when I sit down, it's like, okay, it's these three hours. Mm -hmm. And it's always at this time. I usually write now. It used to be, you know, years ago, I wrote in the mornings when my son was in school. And, you know, now I write at night, like in the early evening, like seven to 10, 10 something like that. When my husband goes back to his studio. So it's a time you're, you know, it's like your unconscious knows that this is where you go at this time. And then I go back and I read what I wrote the day before. And that is the entry into that unconscious place where the story flows forward. I'm not a plot person. Mm-hmm. I really am not interested in plot at all. <laughs> so, you know, what I'm interested in, and you said something about this earlier, is about people just living their lives and mm-hmm. the emotions they experience along the way. Yeah, I, for me, it's, it is, it's like, if I can write something that will move someone emotionally, like, I, I always think of, you know, if I'm, if I'm sitting down with a book, or I'm listening to an audiobook, whatever, however I'm engaging with a book, I know I'm going to spend, you know, depending on the length of the book, 8, 10, 12, 20 hours with this story. And to me, like, yes, plot obviously is important. Like that's a big driver of the ideas of a book is, but like, I know that I will remember a book because of how it made me feel more than what happened on the pages. And so I know when I'm writing, if I can write something that feels emotional that, you know, someday someone else will read it. Like, I hope they like where my story went, but I more so want them to feel something like I would rather have them hate a scene. At least they would remember it that way as opposed to being apathetic. Like to me, any emotion is better than no emotion. And that's, you know, so even if I finish a book and it's like infuriates me, I'm still like, wow, great job by that author because they made me feel something. I was invested enough in the emotions of these characters and this plot to remember it in some way. See, I, I totally know what you mean. That's really, really interesting. We'll be back with more passions and prologues after this break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now, back to Passions and Prologues. One of the most gratifying parts of having this novel, Loving the Dead and Gone, out in the world now Mm -hmm. is getting reviewer and reader feedback. And it's interesting, NetGalley, uh, you know that platform. Yes, 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 yes. With the advanced 
reader copies of books available for reviewers. There's some kind of little algorithm trick you can do where you can see like what are the main words that have come up in reviewing mm-hmm. reviews of your book. And, you know, thinking about what's your book about has really been a process of reduction for me. Mm-hmm. And the words that kept coming up were love, loss, grief, and grace. And that's really what the book is about. Yeah. And I can, at this point, even distill it further to core wounds. This book grew out of my memory of the tragic death of a favorite uncle when I was three. And then that conflating with later parental infidelities to become loving the dead and gone. So, but I don't know that I was actually in touch with all that until these reviews started to come in. And then the readers were telling me what this book was about. And it was the most gratifying experience. I can't tell you. <laughs> I, I know what you mean because I'm, I'm working on querying a novel right now. And uh, I had an author friend look at my original query letter. And she's like, this is a well-written letter. It doesn't tell me a single thing about your book, though. And I was like, man, I have to like distill my book down to like two paragraphs. It's so hard. And I, no, I know no, Adam, you need one <laughs> sentence. I, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly right. And it's just like, that's a really great point. So like to that, I, would you mind giving our listeners a little more in-depth kind of plot description of Loving the Dead and Gone? You know, it's, it starts with, with a car crash, but it kind of like moves things into motion. Can you kind of go from there just to give them a little bit more about what it's about? Because it's so wonderful, but I want to make sure you do it justice as the, as the, oh, the Now that you have oh, practice yeah. seeing other people. Now that I have practice. It. Yeah. So you're right. It does begin with this freak car crash in 1960s rural North Carolina. And that puts in motion moments of grace and redemption for these two generations of women and the lives that they touch. So I use this tragedy, a dual timeline, and this small stage of this 1960s Southern mill town to take readers inside the lives of four people who are experiencing the fallout from that death. Mm -hmm. And then following their paths as they deal with this. As I said, there are four characters. There's Clayton, who is thrown into a midlife crisis after he discovers Donald Ray. He realizes that he's been emotionally dead for at least a decade, and Mm -hmm. he cannot shake the feeling that he is living for this dead boy. And his wife, Berta May, struggles with her mother's lifelong withholding of love and also this growing crisis in her marriage that she can't really identify, but that just has her in a constant state of anxiety. And Arilla, Berta May's mother, is, as we say in the South, too mean to die. (laughs) But... We come to learn that she's had this life that's just been riddled with unthinkable losses and secrets and that explains her meanness. And then there's Darlene, the impetuous, fiery 17-year-old widow who is struggling not only with losing a new husband, but 
trying to keep him alive and trying to keep herself alive. And in doing that, she just crashes into Arilla's family with the force of a meteor. So those are all the pieces that are in play in the story. And they all come together so, so beautifully. And I absolutely love that. But I'm curious, you were talking earlier about loving the like repetitiveness of, of dance and loving the kind of, you know, the repetitiveness of swimming and counting reps when you're at, a, at the gym and, and how you also kind of love that reworking of, of uh, a manuscript and things like having this out in the world now and, and seeing reviews. How does that feel? Like, does it, have you been able to let go of the story and, Put it, push it out into the world or is it something that you feel still feel extremely like attached to and want to in your mind go back and continue reworking things <laughs> well adam you know i rewrote this novel five times wow. over a, th- a 30 year period and after i tell you after going through the editing process to just to get it to print mm-hmm. uh, and the multiple rounds of that experience. I think I'm done with this one. <laughs> That's um, fair. Yeah. <laughs> I nearly feel like I could recite it in my sleep at this yeah. point. How does it feel thinking about like moving on to another story? Like, does it feel like moving on from like um, like a family member? Or so? I imagine after spending well, so much time. Well, but you see, I have this very strange career arc. I spent, there was a time in the 80s and 90s, I had this period of 12 years where I wrote four novels, adapted a screenplay from the second one, wrote a large number of short stories, and Things were happening with the writing. You know, I went through three agents, I think. Prizes were won. Awards came. Mm -hmm. uh, But publication didn't. And I just kept... Back, this takes us back to the undaunted, stubborn part. I just kept working because the voices and the stories kept coming. Mm -hmm. So I can remember there is this period of sort of grief when you finish, and I put quotation marks around that, Mm -hmm. a story. Because you, for me at least, I do find myself experiencing the world for my characters. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you don't have those people to pour those things into to gift with those experiences. So it's a bit unmooring. I do remember that. But this time is very different. The question I find myself dealing with now, it's like, okay, which of these three other novels am I going to focus on and which one makes the most sense to put forward next? Mm -hmm. So it's a different place from where I was then when I was finishing all those manuscripts, you know, I was writing a new book every two years. So it's a weird, I know it's weird. It's a weird story. Yeah. Like having, like I said, querying a novel now and like understanding, having been in the the literary world for over a decade, like I I understand that querying the, the moments from like querying to getting an agent, to getting a publisher to publishing is a very long time. And so I don't want to just like sit around and do nothing while I wait for all these different things. So it's like, but at the same time, like you said, I finished my first, this, this story. And now where do I focus all this attention? Because I, you know, 
writers are going to write no matter whether they're published or not, or, you know, not a single person ever looks at the thing you write or, you know, a million people to like, it doesn't matter. You're always going to try to write something and it's just, yeah, I, I know it should be like that whole like, okay, well, I've seen the world through these characters' eyes for so long and now I need to either look at a different world or through different characters' eyes. Yeah, it can be, it's, it's very much like an emotional, it's like losing someone. It's like mourning something while also embracing the start of something new. It's a lot goes into it. It's a lot of emotions. Exactly, exactly. Because you form these relationships with these people and you find yourself thinking, well, what would so-and-so think about this, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That kind of thing. Or how would they react in this situation? Yeah, that whole thing of like letting go and Mm -hmm. going forward to something else. But a very wise artist friend of mine talked about how, you know, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. And you have put so much into this thing. The tide is out for the moment. Mm-hmm. And you have to allow yourself to the space to let the tide come back in and bring you these new ideas and or to hear new voices. But you have to trust the process. Yeah. You really have to trust the process. And I don't think it's something that can be forced. And it shouldn't be because, you know, as with, a run when you're in the zone or Mm -hmm. dance when you're in the flow. It's a moment of grace as well. And I think that writing is very much a moment of grace. Oh my gosh. I love that sentence. So I'm going to write that down next to anywhere that I'm writing. (laughs) writing Wow. Did I say that? Did I really say that? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Judith, that is perfect. You should like sell t-shirts with that writing. But what did I say, Adam? (laughs) Writing writing is a moment of grace. I love that. So that's like fantastic. That's so good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So last question for you. I always end with asking for a recommendation from the author. It could be a book recommendation. It could be a TV show or a a recipe, somebody, I think one of my most recent guests, literally her recommendation was go for a walk. Like what's something that you recommend to people that you think more people should know about? Again, it could be a dance or a book, whatever you want to recommend. The floor is yours. Wow. You know, there's so many things. I annoy my husband endlessly at breakfast as I'm going through the New York Times and social media. And, you know, I have to share this and I have to share that. And at the moment, I'm reading to prepare for a panel for the a Kentucky Book Festival next week. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, on a, I'm, I'm on a panel with one of the authors I'm on the panel with is Sheila Williams. Mm-hmm. And she's, oh gosh, am I going to be able to find the title now? Her newest book. Oh, yes, it's Things Past Telling by Sheila Williams. You know, the, the panel is about honoring family legacy through writing. And the story is incredible because she found some census records in Ohio, This bringing it back to us, <laughs> this uh, woman um, who had, she was like 112 years old, I don't know, in 1870, what, gosh, 1878. Mm-hmm. But it, so she, she found this record of this woman and 
she did all this historical research and also brought in her own family history as an African-American to this story. And I am just so humbled to be on this panel because, you know, I'm addressing these these personal family wounds in my writing and they're addressing, you know, this legacy that is just unimaginable. And, you know, just characters going back and reimagining, you know, remembering their lives and the, the whole arc of it. And right now, the, you know, the slave ship just got uh, commandeered by a pirate and it's like just this unbelievable story, but it's told so incredibly well and you really are inside this narrator and feeling this unbelievable pain. I, I, I'm just amazed. It's so good. That sounds fantastic. And speaking of so, so good, Loving the Dead and Gone is fantastic. And to everyone listening, I'm telling you, you have to go get Judith's book. It is so wonderful. And I loved every second of both the book and this conversation. Judith, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Adam, it has been my pleasure. It was lovely speaking with you. Great conversation. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.